Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of By Study and By Faith, where we take a look at critical thinking skills and apply them to LDS theology and history. I'm Zach Wright, and we've got a very exciting episode today. We're going to be talking about epistemology. And I'm super excited to get into it. I do want to make one quick plug though. We we recently wrapped up the FAIR conference and it was a blast. I got to go. I had a ton of fun. I got to meet a lot of people that I really enjoyed, you know, being able to chat with, and I got to learn a lot of really cool stuff. It's available online on the FAIR website. You can take a look and uh, you should be able to stream it on demand. It's free. I, in fact, I just did it the other day just so that I could take a look at some of the the presentations again. So if you want to be able to take a look at what the, the last presentations and last conference had to say, definitely take a look at that. It's awesome. Highly recommend it. But besides that, I think we're just going to launch right into it today. One of the things that I've noticed is that whether, whether people realize it or not, they're going into life with certain philosophical assumptions and a certain philosophy that they employ in their daily lives. And nowhere is this more apparent than in the realm of epistemology. So there's, there's a quote I was able to find that kind of explained this rather well. It says the following. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. It is concerned with the mind's relation to reality. What is it for this relation to be one of knowledge? Do we know things? And if we do, how and when do we know things? These questions, and so the field of epistemology, is as old as philosophy itself. So, as, as the quote was able to kind of demonstrate, it's a rather broad topic, and we're not going to be able to talk about everything today. Uh, so, for instance, there's a branch of epistemology that talks about whether or not it's possible for us to even know things. We're going to talk a little bit about the theory of knowledge, but we, um, we're not going to go too deeply into that. When, when, I'm, when I'm talking about epistemology, I'm talking about the branch that's, that's discussing how we learn things. And, and this is kind of important for us as critical thinkers, because we need to be able to find out what our sources of information are so that we can actually arrive at conclusions and un understand what sources are saying what and be able to parse between them so that we can better understand the world around us, solve problems, make decisions, and make the world a better place. Just to kind of just to kind of branch us out, first we're gonna be talking we're gonna be explaining some terms. Then we're gonna be talking about kind of a, a methodology of epistemology that I think works decently well. And then we're gonna be talking about um, some more kind of deeper problems that epistemology and how that might relate to LDS theology and how LDS theology might be able to help. Let's get into it. So knowledge is kind of a, it's kind of a tricky thing because every, every way that we try to absorb knowledge, every, every way that we try to learn, there, there's a, at some point it has a proclivity to fall apart. It, it's just the world is, is kind of a messy place. And it's difficult, it's difficult for us to, to parse through information perfectly. But by going over what knowledge is, there's, there, it provides a baseline for what we're trying to do or what we're trying to be able to learn anyway. So when I say knowledge, I, I'm going off of the, uh, the theory that uh, Humer, Michael Humer, proposes in his book, Understanding Knowledge. And he talks about this as the defeasibility theory of knowledge, and I think it works rather well. So it has four, four tenets. 
So first, you have it requ knowledge requires a belief. You have to believe that's actually true. And all right, makes sense, fair enough. Uh, two, it has to be true. That is, it has to be in agreement with reality. If not, then the argument is that you can't really know it. Uh, three, there has to be some kind of justification. That is, there has to be a reason for you to believe it. And it's interesting because most philosophers kind of just chalked that up to being knowledge being those three things. But there, recently, it's it's becoming more apparent that that's less the case. And so a lot of people try to propose kind of a, a fourth tenet. So the fourth tenet is that there can't be any proposition that if, if added would defeat the justification for believing it. And by having all four of these tenets, that that's how Michael Humer proposes that, that we're able to actually know things. Now, this is where things get tricky because according to this model, knowledge is to be differentiated from certainty. They're not the same thing, which is, which is kind of weird because they're, in my mind, they're kind of associated. And that's true, they are, but they are a little bit different. Certainty is, is more akin to confidence. And when you know something, you can have a degree of confidence in it, but they are, they are somewhat different. Uh, in philosophy, there are a few different kinds of certainty that are defined. What I'm referring to is this idea of absolute certainty. Absolute certainty refers to this idea that we are 100% certain about anything, um, about about some kind of given topic, in the sense that we have no doubt whatsoever, bar none. From, from this kind of perspective, that's really kind of impossible. And not only is it impossible, but it's, it's also kind of impractical, and I'll explain why. So let's say for a minute that we have this, this method that allows us to be 100% certain about something. Wouldn't that be nice? However, there would, there would be this question of, could we be 100% certain about that method? Well, we, we, we kind of run into a problem there because it starts employing kind of fallacious logic like we talked about in our last episode. So for instance, if we were to have the, the first premise be, X method teaches us how to be 100% certain about something. And the second premise is, this argument follows X method. And then our conclusion would be, we can be 100% certain that X method is true. You probably see the problem there. The argument presupposes that X method works. And so it's, it's circular reasoning in the sense that it's, it's saying that we can be 100% certain of X method because X method states that we could be 100% certain of X method. It just doesn't work that way. It's begging the question as to why X method still works. That's kind of what I mean when I when I say it's somewhat fallacious to try and achieve this kind of absolute certainty, at least from an intellectual standpoint. It's worth noting too that when I talk about absolute certainty, it's related to this idea of psychological certainty, where it's um it it doesn't it doesn't necessarily prove all that much. That kind of certainty doesn't prove anything. So uh, one, one quote I was able to find reads the following way. Uh, Psychological certainty, for its part, is generally regarded as being non-factive, or it doesn't, that is to say, it doesn't necessarily prove something as a fact. 
Uh, for example, John can be psychologically certain that it's raining in Paris, even if it's not raining in Paris. In addition, psychological certainty does not require that a subject be in a favorable epistemic position. John can have no reason to believe that it's raining in Paris, and yet be psychologically certain that it is raining in Paris. So again, this goes back to our original idea that uh, our confidence about something doesn't lend any strength to our ideas. And that, again, it goes back to our, our certainty about something, or having absolute certainty about something is as impossible to obtain as it is just kind of impractical. Like I said, it doesn't really prove all that much besides the fact that we, you know, believe it. Does that mean that we should just not be certain about anything and just embrace this kind of like overall skepticism? Well, no, it just means that we have to understand what our competence is about something. And we have to understand that we can't be 100% certain about anything, not that we can't have any confidence in any idea at all. The goal of epistemology is to provide a system for learning that can help us be confident about our ideas. Um, an epistemic certainty, if you will. It's, it's for this reason that I and others don't have any problem with, with statements such as, I know the church is true whenever we whenever we bear our testimonies. We're not saying that there is there is no reason whatsoever to ever try and consider faith about anything. What we are saying is, is that we have a high degree of confidence, allegedly due to the spirit, that the church is true and that our testimonies are based on the prerequisites of knowledge described above. That brings us to kind of what our system of epistemology should be. Now, it's worth noting that the church doesn't really have like a set epistemology. That it doesn't say you must use X, Y, and Z sources. What it does say is that we can receive inspiration. It's making a theological claim. But I hope to be able to kind of draw these ideas together so that we can kind of arrive at a better place in terms of how epistemology can relate to belief. So when we learn something, I'm referring to kind of two processes by which a piece of information arrives in our heads. The, the first one comes from a more concrete psychological perspective where learning is kind of characterized by ideas such as classical conditioning, operant conditioning, observational learning. Uh, using sensations and perceptions, we're able to um, receive signals to the outside, from the outside world and translate them, so to speak, into thoughts. Uh, those thoughts are then put into our brains and we have them at our, at our discretion. We have them to use at our discretion, I should say. Admittedly, the, the mechanism by which this is done is lost on most neuroscientists and psychologists. Uh, determinism happens to be one of the one of the closest ways I've found people try to reconcile this. Uh, more can be said about that if you want to take a look at the notes for this for this essay, but that's that's doesn't really suit the purposes of our discussion here. The second form of learning is, is a little bit more abstract. It has to do with with consciously or unconsciously processing the information that we've already taken in, or that just kind of is like our baseline default information within us. I mention this because I classify my epistemology as being under these two umbrella categories. There are 
processes that happen inside the mind and there are processes or behaviors that happen external to the mind. So I've put up a, an, a model of epistemology that I think is kind of useful. I call it the umbrella model. I'm very proud of it. Uh, it I think it helps demonstrate how a lot of these kind of processes interact with each other. So I'll, I'll be explaining different aspects of this diagram throughout the, the rest of this kind of episode so that you can kind of see it. Um, there's also a picture of it in, in this article here, in, in the article as well, so you'll be able to take a look at it there if you're listening to this. Under the external umbrella, I've allocated kind of these things that I reserve as being primarily focused outside of the self. Or in other words, they, they don't happen inside our brains per se, it happens outside of the body and must be observed. The only thing I found that I think that I think over that, that, that encompasses pretty much everything under this external umbrella is behavior outcomes. And I'll explain a little bit what I mean by that. I've, I've yet to find things that happen outside of us that aren't the direct result of some kind of behavior, whether on a micro or macroscopic level. So what do I mean by that? Well, for example, if I was to take a bite of an apple, uh, that's an outcome of a behavior that I would observe and internalize. And so I suddenly have that information in my brain that I've taken a bite out of an apple. It tastes delicious. And naturally, I'm, I'm, when I say that when I use the word observe, I'm using it more in kind of like a broader sense. It's not just like looking at things. I'm I'm using the entire scope of my sensation and perception to intake information. So I have a few examples of that. So one of the examples I put out here was, we look out in the sky and see a bird flapping its wings. We observe the outcome of that behavior, the bird can fly. Uh, I reach my hand out and accidentally touch a hot stove. I observe the outcome of that behavior. My hand gets burned. Or, against our better judgment, we bite into a raw tomato and observe the outcome of that behavior. It tastes terrible. I just need to let go of my vendetta of tomatoes. That's what I need to do. In the same realm of behavior outcome, we have communication or testimony. Uh, this isn't like bearing your testimony. This is just saying, this is just, this is more like the communication aspect where we're just saying something. Uh, communication is unique among behavior outcome because it's uh, it's the only way that we are able to transfer ideas from one person's mind to another. And there are different systems by which this is done, but again, it falls under this kind of behavior out, uh, behavior outcome category. And we, we have a few basic examples of that too. So my mom tells me she loves me. I observe the outcome of that behavior. I now have the idea communicated to me that my mom loves me. Uh, someone scrunches up their face and furrows their eyebrows and is yelling. I observe the outcome of that behavior. I have the idea communicated to me that they're upset. Third, my, my sister hugs me. I observe the outcome of that behavior. I now have the idea communicated to me that she cares about me. That sort of thing. With communication, there's a bit of clarification that needs to happen. You have to be intaking a certain amount of information and learn how to communicate. Not all the time. Uh, there, there's some interesting ideas about how facial expressions are just kind of universal, even if people haven't really seen them. There's more to be said about that, but uh, 
regardless, there is a bit of clarification that needs to happen and a bit of cultural background uh, that's required in order to communicate effectively in a given area. Still, I, I don't think it quite classifies as its own category beyond behavior outcome. And so I, I kind of put it under this behavior outcome and external umbrella, because I think that's the best place it belongs. E even so though, uh, there's probably something to be said about how that specific behavior of communication is, is somewhat unique. At, at least there are, of all the different species of animals that exist, humans have one of the more unique ways of being able to communicate. But that leads us to the internal umbrella, the, the kind of internal processes by which ideas arrive in our heads. Uh, so most of the time when psychologists talk about this idea, they're referring to mostly two things. Uh, they're referring to intuition and they're referring to reason. You'll sometimes, if memory serves, you'll sometimes see this classified as type one and type two thinking. But basically, there are, they are processes within our mind that either further develop or otherwise classify outside behavior in a certain way. And I'll be explaining a little bit what that means. However, for our intensive purposes, these are also epistemic sources. They are sources for our epistemology. Um, I've already done an episode on, I've actually done a couple of episodes that kind of talk about both good and bad logical thinking and reason as a whole. It's the process of having propositions, arriving at conclusions, and kind of analyzing the information so that you can arrive at our ideas with a decent amount of certainty. So I, I won't go too deeply into that, but intuition I think does warrant some explanation because it's kind of a it's kind of a muddy concept. There are certain ideas that are that are that are kind of accepted by by most scholars that talk about it. But it is a little bit it is a little bit funny in how it presents itself because most people when they talk about it, it's basically everything that's not reason. It's just kind of interesting the way that that's that's kind of explained. For example, one source I was looking at that talked about intuition and insight uh, reads the following way. Uh, based on these examples, both phenomena, intuition and insight, may be conceived of as non-analytical thought processes that result in certain behavior that is not based on an exclusively deliberate and stepwise search for a solution. Non-analytical thought means a thought process in which no deliberate deduction takes place. Individuals are not engaged in the consecutive testing of obvious and or typical routes to solutions that define deliberate analysis. Instead, intuitions are characterized by the decision maker feeling out the solution without an available, tangible explanation for it. Insights are characterized by the fact that the solution suddenly and unexpectedly pops into the mind of the decision maker or problem solver being instantaneously self-evident. There's a lot of debate where intuition comes from, but mostly when, psycholo when psychologists talk about it, they talk about its ability to recognize patterns, its overall efficiency, and its impact on morality. So some basic examples of intuition can be found in these kind of ideas. So you, uh, you have a surge of nervousness that rushes through you as you enter a dangerous situation. You, you now know, or you have the, you know, your intuition is telling you that you're in danger. 
You make a decision quickly but can't explain why, it just felt right. Or you have a feeling in your gut that you should listen to the missionaries and what they have to say. As you look at the chart, there seems to be some kind of connection between each of the sources of information. Uh, intuition or reason seem to rely on outside information to recognize patterns, establish arguments, and otherwise arrive at conclusions or ideas. Consequently, we see intuition and reason classify certain events a certain way, manipulating the authority that they have as being either stronger or weaker, thus affecting how we learn from the external sources. And I can cite an example of this with a historical figure in the church. So. That way we can kind of get a feel for what's going on here. Those familiar with LDS history are familiar with the figure John C. Bennett. Uh, Bennett was a friend to Joseph Smith and the mayor of Nauvoo for a brief period. However, uh, Bennett was cut off when Joseph found out that, among other things, he was using his position as well as rumors for a plural marriage in Nauvoo to uh, trick women into sleeping with him. Uh, from that point on, Bennett became a bitter, hostile critic of the church, making all kinds of claims against Joseph Smith and the saints, with varying degrees of veracity. Here's how one author described Bennett's allegations against Joseph. Bennett was touring the nation with a lurid, book-length expose, charging Mormon leaders with infidelity, deism, atheism, lying, deception, blasphemy, debauchery, lasciviousness, bestiality, Madness, fraud, plunder, larceny, burglary, robbery, perjury, fornication, adultery. That one word I probably can't say on YouTube without getting censored. Incest, arson, treason, and murder. He said Smith and his followers out-herited Herod and out-deviled the devil, slandered God Almighty, Jesus Christ, and the holy angels, and even the devil himself. So that's quite the list of allegations. And... Critical thinkers will rightfully begin to question whether or not those claims are legitimate. Uh, some people think so, other people, myself included, don't. But that debate in of itself isn't necessarily the issue. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that when critical thinkers read things like that, we are aware that our internal reasoning or our intuition about Joseph Smith affects how we view John C. Bennett. Perhaps our intuition suggests that Bennett may be acting out of rage, or perhaps we reason that there's more going on to the story. Whatever the case may be, our internal processes affect how we interpret our external sources. And there's more, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. This, this kind of explores another really interesting idea about epistemology is that the, the sources that we pull from shift according to the topic. And I'm not saying it changes without any kind of, without any kind of standard or for no reason. All I'm saying is that the outcomes of behaviors and our internal processes, both intuition and reason, play different roles in different scenarios depending on the information that we have. Why is that? Well, we, we only have so much information to work with on a given topic. So for instance, math. Uh, I like math. I, I tend to be a little bit more reason-based anyway, or at least I try to be. There are only so many people that talk about math. And the actual conceptualization of math occurs in our minds. For more historical analyses, though, while reason may be useful, communication and that kind of behavior outcome is usually 
more important when it comes to arriving at conclusions. Communication provides more, hopefully accurate, details about past events, uh, what the people were thinking, and the kinds of people that were living in that time far more than reason does. And as critical thinkers, we need to apply the right sources of information for the right kind of job. And this is especially important as we talk about religious belief, which leads us to our next topic. This is where things kind of get tricky though, because while the external umbrella sources, that is behavior outcomes, uh, they, they play a vital role most of the brunt work for epistemology is done in the internal umbrella. It, it doesn't matter how many testimonies or communication or behavior outcomes exist around somebody, if the, internal, if the internal sources are ultimately in charge in bestowing authority upon those, we, we really kind of find that intuition and reason become one of, pretty much some of the most important aspects of epistemology. But let's say we're talking about like a complex topic such as morality. Which one is better, reason or intuition? One may initially suppose that reason is the ultimate source, but we run into a problem there because reason requires an infinite number of premises to be acknowledged valid. Here's how one author describes it. Arguments are our model for how these reasons go. We offer some premises and show how they support a conclusion. Of course, arbitrary premises won't do, so you've got to have some reason for holding them as opposed to some others. Every premise, then, is a conclusion in need of an argument, and for arguments to be acceptable, we've got to do due diligence on these premises. This, however, leads to a disturbing pattern. For every premise we turn into a conclusion, we end up with at least one other premise in need of another argument. Pretty soon, even the simplest arguments are going to get very, very complicated. So this is what philosophers refer to as the epistemic regress problem. And it, it has both of these facets. So for instance, it talks we just talked about the problem with reason and how it has certain premises, an infinite amount of premises that you need to support. But we also talk a little bit about how there's this kind of flow in terms of sources and how uh, the external sources are somewhat governed by, if not completely governed by the internal sources. What are, what are we as critical thinkers to, to do about this? In order to understand how to resolve this problem, we have to fully explore how, more fully explore how people have tried to resolve it. So there are a few philosophical systems out there that attempt to resolve the epistemic regress problem. Uh, foundationalism, coherentism, infinitism. Uh, while there are notable differences between them, there is good evidence to support that they derive their strength mostly from metaphysical grounding. And metaphysical grounding tackles the question of what grounds what, or what is the foundation or basis of something. So let me give an example. Here's, here's another quote that kind of talks about this. Um, metaphysical ground is supposed to be a distinctive metaphysical kind of determination. It is, or underwrites, con constitutive explanations. These explanations answer questions asking in virtue of what something is so. For example, suppose that an act is pious just in case it is loved by the gods. 
Following Socrates, one might still ask whether an act is pious because the gods love it, or whether it is loved by the gods because it is pious. This may be interpreted as a question of ground. In other words, epistemologists seem to converge on this idea that the true basis of something is grounded on a fundamental principle. I, either that or they just embrace skepticism. So going back to our, our system of morality, the, the question that epistemologists try to answer is, what is the ground of morality? What, what describes something as being moral? How can we learn what is moral, etc. However, that leads us back to our, our question. What is the foundation for concepts such as morality? What's the foundation of morality? And the way I see it, this is where I think Christianity, and specifically the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, really begins to shine. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe that the foundation of everything that is good comes from God. We also believe that every person is given the ability to discern what is right and wrong through the light of Christ, which is described as being in all things. And this is where I believe our moral intuitions come from, at least in part. And, and, and as we mentioned, though, as we mentioned earlier, intuitions can be affected by, by our surroundings and other aspects. Even so, I see the light of Christ and the Holy Ghost interacting with the above outlined epistemology, the umbrella model, in a few different ways. So first, it suggests that the light of Christ is interwoven within every one of the sources of epistemology. This would allegedly help us classify things as being morally right and wrong. Second, the Holy Ghost uses these sources together to testify of Jesus Christ and help us believe that he is the savior and redeemer of the world. It wouldn't just be intuition in this sense, it would be the Holy Ghost using behavior outcomes, reason, and intuition to help testify of Jesus Christ. Third, by enhancing our understanding of these sources, and it, by intaking information, it becomes easier for us to recognize the light of Christ and the Holy Ghost in the natural world. This has some, has, this, this has some kind of fascinating implications for for what we find about epistemology. If this is true, and this is how the light of Christ and how the Holy Ghost works, then what does that imply about our souls? Do they interact with our intuition in a similar way to help us choose? Is there more than meets the eye? As it stands right now, it's impossible to say. What I hope to be able to get across is that by understanding these concepts behind epistemology and this kind of, this kind of philosophy of thought, it actually works rather well with what we understand about the church and what we're able to learn from kind of theological sources. They're not conflicting, and that's really important to understand. One more thing before we, we kind of wrap up here. Uh, there, is, uh, there is a little bit of controversy about grounding within within kind of the membership of the church. Uh, many people wonder whether something, let's call it X, uh, is good because God does X, or whether God does X because it's good. Uh, other people phrase this question in terms of, is God subject to moral laws or does God make the laws? I ultimately find a lot of this discussion to be kind of pointless. I'm, I'm trying to be a practical person in that regard. and. A part of me thinks it's kind of a distinction without a difference. You end up doing good anyway, under either model. Uh, regardless of your opinion, though, the, the point remains, by grounding our moral epistemologies on God, 
we claim that we can learn about an objective moral standard and that through a relationship with him we will continue to learn about said moral standard. Either way, God helps us gain access to that information, and a belief in God also helps add insight to a centuries-old philosophical problem, which is always a plus. In conclusion, epistemology is an important topic with a complex history. I, I hope that by discussing this, critical thinkers can be more equipped to, to answer questions about where they're getting their information from. By, by adhering to the umbrella model and by kind of conceptualizing gaining knowledge in that way, I think it'll be easier for us to talk about what it means to know things, what it is to learn things, and how us knowing and learning things can relate to theological knowledge and the information that we gain through the light of Christ and through the Holy Ghost. We all have a lot to gain from studying epistemology. And that I and I hope that by educating people about it, we can we can make a positive difference in the world, and become the kind of thinkers and believers that God wants us to be. But that was that was mostly what I wanted to talk about today. So thanks for tuning in. I appreciate being able to talk about this sort of thing. I think it's really important, and I appreciate the support that I get from uh, both people who leave comments and people on the sidelines who help me out with this sort of thing. I really appreciate it. The next time next time we're going to be talking a little bit about cognitive biases, which is kind of we're going to be talking a little bit more about intuition and how it can be helpful and sometimes how it cannot be helpful. But that's what I wanted to talk about today and I hope that you have a fantastic rest of your day.